So in a lot of ways, what we're talking about is kind of a culmination. So we've gone through this foundations material, what it means to be a Christian, some of the foundational things that you need to be thinking about um, as you, you know, walk, you start your Christian walk, uh, even for us that have been Christians for a little while, some of the things we need to revisit. And in a lot of ways, evangelism is putting all that material together. Uh, It's really a display of, if you remember when uh, Jesus answers, uh, what is the great commandment? And when they, he was, you know, his response is that you love God and love others. And in a, in a very uh, tangible way, evangelism is those two things combined. So it's you're you're doing evangelism because you're loving God and you're loving others. And so, uh, in a very real way, it, it displays your obedience uh, and your your compassion for other people. So we want to uh, give it some attention, try to understand it correctly, and uh, try to deal with some maybe some practices that are not biblical and try to think about how we can practice evangelism in a biblical fashion. So let's go ahead and just start right at the top 130. The emphasis that the New Testament places on evangelism can hardly be overstated. Excuse me. Indeed, one could argue that every book of the New Testament and of the Old contains a command or an example of evangelism. So evangelism, evangelism is of utmost importance to God and must therefore be of utmost importance to his people. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, you probably have heard, at least heard that name, the great English preacher of the 19th century writes, Soul winning is the chief business of the Christian minister. Indeed, it should be the main pursuit of every true believer. So God has entrusted the gospel message to human messengers uh, like us, therefore, it is essential that you learn what it is, why it's important, and how to do it effectively. So, uh, the first step then under the meaning, the first step in our study of evangelism is to define it. We cannot obey a command that we don't understand. So, what exactly is it? Uh, the word evangelize is the English equivalent of the Greek word euangelizo. Probably uh, mispronouncing that. Uh, both the English and Greek words mean to proclaim good news. So, a few clarifications are in order. The work of evangelism is proclaiming. So this is, um, when we think about what it exactly we're doing here, we're actually trying to, we're pro- proclaiming a message. So many well-meaning Christians substitute a number of activities for biblical evangelism. Uh, they mistake evangelism for getting someone saved. So a lot, you know, it was popular in a previous era, so some of you may have been experienced to this or may have heard about these things, evangelistic outreach events. You know, you have these big outreach, uh, they used to have them at stadiums and things like that, really popular preachers. I mean, you get 50,000 people down in, in Ford Field or something uh, for these, these type of evangelistic outreach events. And so, because it was just about getting people saved, getting numbers, getting people to turn out. Uh, and so... We want to understand what exactly are we, we talking about. Is that it? You know, is, is it just getting people so they hear this message? They believe that the work of the evangelist is to argue, convince, manipulate a sinner into praying the sinner's prayer. So a lot of times that's exactly what was going on. Yet the Bible teaches that evangelism is simply the proclaiming of the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, telling is the work of the believer. Convicting and saving are the works of God. So that's really something that this this lesson is going to trace through is that you know we have a responsibility to c- carry this message out to tell it to faithfully proclaim it the convicting the saving works are, are in the uh, realm of God those are his alone to to do so we don't we're not trying to manipulate others into into the kingdom of heaven and I think for most of us you know we all uh, you know whether it's family friends you know that having a proper understanding of what evangelism is uh, really will impact how we how we evangelize, evangelize others or engage in it. So number two, the message of evangelism is God's message. So part of the Greek word comes from the word angelos. And obviously that comes, you get the word angel from that. So that's the, the blank there, angel. The, the general meaning of the word Angelos is messenger. A messenger is sent with a message by someone else. He does not develop his own message. 
So a lot of times in the Old Testament, when you see uh, when the, an angel appears, it's, the angel appears to carry a message out. If we look in the book of Hebrews, that's what it it'll, tells us that's what the angels did in the Old Testament. They carried the message, uh, God's message to his people. So 2 Corinthians 5.20 uses a similar title for Christians who share Christ's message. And it says that, uh, Paul says there in 2 Corinthians, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, his ambassadors. So that's the title given to Christians. What important message has Christ committed to our care? That is in verse 19. He, that is Christ, has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So we have this message of reconciliation from God to sinners. So the job of an ambassador is not to be creative with the message, rather it is to be accurate with the message. So a lot of ways that actually takes a lot of the stress off on us in a lot of ways because we don't have to worry about do I have to dress this message up? How do I have to deliver it? You know, if some of you, you know, as you teach something, if you've ever had an experience to teach others, you know, you have to try to figure out what's the best way, what are some methods I can get to get this material across to someone else. Uh, and really, when we're conveying the gospel message, it's not about how I can get this message together and, and, and get it to that person, make it uh, attractive to that person. Our only responsibility is to uh, transmit it faithfully. So, uh, it says a prominent influential American church boasts in its literature that they give the gospel a soft sell. That is a casual, uh, a friendly, a subtle approach. Uh, that's what their, their goal is. They don't want to anger or push away a potential customer. That's what a soft sell is. You're not trying to push away, a co- uh, so you're trying to be friendly with them. So, you compare that statement with your previous answer, is, there, is something wrong? So, as we said, you know, they're thinking about it's their role. Uh, as we talked about, it's we're not to be creative, but they're, that's exactly what they're doing. So the problem is they're trying to be creative with the message there. They're trying to manipulate the person, which is not what we're supposed to be doing. So the message of the gospel is God's, not yours. You do not have the right to alter it or tone it down. So how arrogant it is to assert that God was too firm when he wrote the Bible included too many objectionable elements and therefore needs to serve as his filter. God's message must not be changed. So this, I think that last couple sentences is is applicable to the culture that we find ourselves in today. Because uh, that's exactly the kind of language you'll, you'll get as a Christian. How arrogant it is to assert that God is this or that the Bible is saying that. It's arrogant on our part as Christians to have a message like that. So that's the message. That's the how the world is actually approaching us nowadays. So number three, the message of evangelism is good. Although the gospel contains hard things such as sin and judgment, it is vital that you remember that evangelism is sharing good news. So Christ's death and resurrection to save sinners is good news, not bad. Unfortunately, some Christians present the gospel with little joy or tact. Sin and judgment are an essential part of the gospel, but they are only a part. You must tell people that God is holy and that they are deserving of hell, but you must immediately follow those facts with the love of God that caused him to send Christ. So Romans 6.23, how does it balance the positive and negative? So it says that we have, uh, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there we have what Paul is saying in Romans is that we've already actually earned this this death sentence. We deserve eternal punishment, but through God's grace we can have eternal life. So the, that's the balance there. We have already deserved this. We have earned eternal punishment, but God's grace has, has offered us eternal life. So the, the negative and positive of the gospel. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that last statement, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So still that, that balance that we actually are actually in this death sentence. We're already on our way to eternal punishment. Uh, but Christ died for us and offered this, this gift of eternal life. So how does John 3.16 do the same? Uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his, only, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
So we were perishing, as it said, already. That was our, our, our natural state apart from God as we were par- perishing. Where we, we were headed until God graciously intervened. So, what, what this, these last couple, what we're looking at with these Bible verses and what we're trying to get at here is that you need to offer a balanced gospel. So it's not a gospel that's just, it's all positive or all negative. So it's not just heavy on, you know, you're a sinner, you know, get saved from hell, uh, or that you're, you know, you're all that is God who just wants to bless you. You know, God, there's the positives that you want. So we're talking about a balanced, uh, that, that you're actually offering a balanced gospel. So some may object to the Bible's teaching on hell by saying that a loving God would not send anyone to hell. And there's actually, you know, in, in churches you'll hear some sometimes hear things like that. And, you know, a lot of times that's out of a... We, we're not doing that because we're trying to be disobedient. So sometimes you'll hear that from people because they may know someone, it may be someone dear to them, someone who they love, who they're afraid to see going to hell. So they're they're having trouble confronting that truth. So however, Scripture teaches that many people will choose to reject Christ and will therefore spend eternity apart from God in hell. So what important fact does 2 Peter 3.9 teach about God's desire? So 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So God's desire is that we would not perish, that we would actually come to to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So it's not God's desire that people uh, go to hell. People who spend eternity in hell do so in spite of God, not because of him. The message of the gospel is good and it needs to be heard. So in, in a lot of ways, that that will help you arming yourself with that knowledge, thinking about those scripture verses will help you when you hear uh, things, uh, objections to the gospel. So if you're talking to someone about Jesus Christ and they say, well, wait, how can God be good if all these people in this situation just died? 9-11, 3,000 people die in the, in the towers. You're telling me God is good and all those innocent people died? Or those people in Aleppo right now, the children in Aleppo, you're telling me God is good but all those people are dying? You know, and you want me to believe this message, you're telling me that God is good. So 2 Peter 3.9 says it's not God's desire that, that people perish. So we need to remember that thing, some of these verses because they'll help us to, to, to strengthen us so that we're not shaken by that. Because sometimes people saying those things, if you're not prepared, can actually make you begin to question. So you need to make sure that you're prepared uh, you know, with some of these things, some of these, think some of these things through as you begin to evangelize. So what motivates people to evangelize? At least two reasons for evangelism are prominent in the great, in the New Testament. So the first of these is the, the Great Commission. A person's parting words are often very significant. Just prior to Jesus Christ's ascension into heaven, he gave his disciples important instructions that are often called the Great Commission. So these are contained in uh, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Uh, Mark 16, Luke 24, 46 through 48, and Acts 1.8. So all those places it appears. And answer. so we want to look at those verses and, and kind of understand what this means. Um, notice the four, there's four verbs. So Matthew 28 is probably one of the best places to start. So it's, it's the clearest presentation. It's a lot of times when we talk about the Great Commission, that's what we were talking about, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. And that says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the ages. So, four verbs, four verbs uh, there, all four commands. Um, we're gonna, we don't want to, I don't want to break this into a Greek lesson, but we, there was something here that we need. The, the, the main verb there is go and make is make disciples. So there's four verbs there. The main controlling verb for the whole section is make disciples. So all the other verbs are actually supporting this idea of making disciples. You make disciples, you do it, uh, the uh, circumstance you do it is by going. 
So we want to understand that making disciples is the heart of the Great Commission. It's not about going. It's not about the other things. The main thing is, is making disciples. So to whom are they commanded to take the gospel? It's to all nations. So here's a, I wanted to read a passage I thought was pretty good and help us to think about the Great Commission. So the heart of the Great Commission is the command to make disciples and loving obedience to Jesus Christ means that we must do what he has commanded. What he has commanded extends beyond simply preaching the gospel to lost people. It involves seeing rebels against God turned into followers of Jesus Christ. In contrast to those sometimes shallow approaches to evangelism and discipleship popular in our day, the New Testament presents us with a powerful gospel that focuses on Jesus Christ himself, not just what he offers to sinners. That's an important idea. It's not just what he offers to sinners. And rather than, than simply providing an eternal address change, the saving grace of God makes believers into new creatures, new, new creatures, created to reflect God's image in righteousness and holiness. It is towards this purpose that we proclaim Christ. So really, making disciples, making followers of Jesus Christ is what, what our aim to do is with evangelism. That's the command of the, that's the, the thrust of the Great Commission, and that's what really what we need to be doing. So the Great Commission does not end with making disciples. In this passage, the Holy Spirit assumes that the new believer will desire to be baptized. Remember that chapter 4, that baptism is a physical demonstration of a spiritual reality. So, again, Matthew 28, make disciples being the controlling idea, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, uh, baptizing, those are all things that you're... Uh, are connected with church membership. So this is making disciples not just so that you have believers floating around, but making followers of Jesus Christ plugged into local churches. Uh, And that's really what the heart of the Great Commission is talking about. So the last command presented in verse 20 is the ongoing work of the church. What is it? It is teaching those disciples those things that Jesus has commanded. So that's the last part of verse 20 there, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, that is Jesus speaking. So compare Mark's account of the Great Commission in Mark, Mark 16, 15 with Matthew's account. What are the similarities? Go into the world and preach the gospel to all creatures. So that's what Mark tells them. So we're same thing. Go preach to everything, to everyone. According to Luke, what is the content of the gospel? So Luke 24, 46 through 48, uh, the content of the gospel the second half of 40, starting at the second half of 46. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. So the Messiah, that is Jesus Christ, will suffer and rise from the, thir- the dead on the third day. So the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is the proper response to the gospel and the result of that response? Is that people will come to Repentance. In light of that knowledge, people will be saved. What was, where was the message to be preached? And that is to all nations. So what were the disciples called by Christ and what does it mean? Verse 48 there of chapter 24, he says, You are witnesses of these things. He calls his disciples witnesses. The, the, the significance is that because what, what does a witness do in a legal setting? is they testify to what has occurred. So if you're called to be a witness, you're called to testify to what you have seen, called to testify uh, to what occurred. You're not trying to uh, make up, make it sound good. You're not trying to influence anybody. You're just giving the facts. This is what I've seen. This is how it happened to the best of my ability. I'm trying to faithfully tell you what happened. And that's so that's the significance. When Jesus calls us witnesses to these things, or it's, it speaks to the fact that we're, we're testifying to what has occurred. So finally, compare Acts 1.8 with Luke's account. We see the similarities. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Christ's blueprint for the spread of the gospel was specifically carried out in the book of Acts. So you see the kind of concentric circles as the gospel expands from Jerusalem, where where the uh, it happens during Pentecost, the uh, the initial event there in, in Jerusalem, it spreads out. 
And as we see in the later parts of Acts, as Peter and Paul begin to carry the gospel out internationally. Mirroring exactly what what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So that's we see that actually being carried out there in the book of Acts. So how does this command relate to you, to me? What are your specific local, regional, and international mission fields? So that's one of those questions you think about. How does how does this apply to me? Where where do I where is my Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, the ends of the earth? How do I and then on the top of page 133, how can you carry out this commission in each place? So, you know, wherever I'm at, where, where I'm at right now, that would be similar to, I guess, your Jerusalem. Well, how do we carry it out to the ends of the earth? You know, is it an idea that we're all supposed to go someplace? If you remember last week, we read Third uh, John, Third uh, John verse 8, which says, Therefore... We ought to support such people, talking about missionaries, so that we become co-workers in cooperation with the truth. So supporting those who are actually going is a way in partnering with the Great Commission and seeing that the gospel is spreading out to the ends of the earth. So that's one way, partnering through prayer, partnering through uh, ministry with your church, that kind of thing. The Great Commission was not merely a responsibility laid on the disciples. It was a continuing responsibility of the church. So Acts 8, 1 through 4, uh, the word euangelizo appears five times in this chapter. First in verse 4, who preached the word wherever they went. So Acts 8, 1 through 4, I'll read that. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen. If you remember, this is in following on the heel of Stephen being stoned to death by the Jewish leaders. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So the, the people who were scattered were just the regular believers. It says all except the apostles. So everybody except the apostles are the ones who began to spread the gospel and preach the word. So evangelism is the job of every believer, not merely pastors. You are the church's outreach program. Scripture uses many pictures to highlight your ministry of evangelism. Fill in the blanks using the following verses. So, we want to, before we move on, I want to, just if we think about uh, practically, as we we think about these, all this, where it says all except the apostles, when all those people were spread out, and they're talking about you know preaching the word, spreading the gospel. How were they doing that? You know, were they holding evangelistic meetings? Is that what they did? Did they go out and gather people together and preach some message? You know, probably not. I mean, they probably was just you know people they met. People they interact with, where they, wherever they began to live, they talk to their neighbors, talk to their friends, and so that really begins to uh, helps us to think about as we encounter people. We need to be thinking about God providentially placing us in certain positions, in certain places, and if we have the opportunity, we need to we need to engage in it. It's not about you know dragging someone off to church so they can hear the gospel. I mean, that's there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not what we want to be thinking about. We're supposed to be doing the evangelism there. We're supposed to be engaged in that. In that, so uh, you know, somehow they did it, and there was you know they're doing it in places where there's no churches yet. So we, we need to be thinking about how can I carry this out in my own life. So now we turn it back to the lesson. Uh, that first one, Acts one eight, Luke twenty four says, "I am a witness, so I should testify. I am a witness, so I should testify." 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 20. I am an ambassador, so I should deliver the message. Paul calls the believers in Corinth ambassadors. Matthew 4, 19. I am a follower, so I should follow him. I should follow Jesus in obedience. Matthew 5, 16. I am a beacon, 
beacon of light. I'm reflecting Jesus' light so I should shine before. Let your light so shine before men. So a genuine compassion. The first motivation to evangelism is the Great Commission. Evangelism is done in obedience to Christ. The second motivation then is compassion on the unsaved. So how should compassion motivate evangelism? I think in a couple ways. I mean, when we think about the helpless state of, of sinners, the helplessness of sinners is one of those things. But also, our, our, if we think back of our, uh, our, our recognition that we were like them. So it's a matter of the helplessness of those people because they can't save, do anything to save themselves. But the re- realization that I was like them one, one time. Apart from God's grace, I would still be like them. So that compassion should be one of the motivators for evangelism. So how are sinners described in Ephesians 2 and Luke 19? Ephesians 2, 3 says, All of us lived, excuse me, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So we were people who deserved God's wrath. We lived for ourselves. According to Luke 19, why did Christ come? So it says, Luke 19 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So we were lost. Christ came to save us. Although the Great Commission and compassion are strong motivators, few Christians are faithful in carrying out the ministry committed to them. So what do you think are some reasons that some believers neglect evangelism? So this is a this is the big one for most of us. For me, definitely. I mean, for all of us. I mean, for most. Some people, you know, they're just highly motivated and they have the ability to get out there and do it. But for most of us, this is this is the the hard part. Reasons why do we why aren't we engaging in evangelism when we have those opportunities? So what do you guys think are some of the reasons that maybe people don't uh, engage in evangelism? They're afraid that you might have the wrong answer. You might like leave them further astray. Yeah, that's a big one, right? You're like, well, maybe I don't. They're going to have questions, or I'm going to say something wrong, and it's going to I'm going to lead this person down the, the wrong road. So that's a really good one. What are some others that you guys maybe have encountered or know of or think? Laziness. Laziness, apathy. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think maybe along with what Daniel says, just fear of others. So maybe you're not just, there's the fear that you're actually going to say something incorrect, but then there's also the fear that you're just afraid what others are going to think about you. Do I really want to affect this relationship? You know, I, I have this good working relationship where i got to work with this person every day, and if I start opening my mouth about Jesus, man, is this person going to, how is this going to affect, you know, are they going to avoid me? Are they going to start thinking I'm a weirdo? You know, like, so this fear of others, we don't know what to say. Any others that we can think about? One of the things I remember reading about, um, and I want to say it was, uh, I'm, I'm gonna, I don't remember exactly who it was, so I don't want to say the wrong author. But one author I thought pointed out, it was really, uh, I think it was Packer, J.I. Packer, who said this. But it was talking about the fact that when we engage in those things, and this was convicting for me, because I'm like Daniel, I think this is one of the things, with Daniel's response, this is one of the things that affects me. Really, when you say that you're afraid of those things, fear of others, it's it's actually uh, talking about the issue of self-love. Because what you're saying is, I care more about how that person thinks about me than I care about that person actually getting saved. Because I don't want to affect how that sees me because, you know, that person needs Christ because they're going to hell. They need to hear this message that I have. I've been charged with giving this message, but I don't want to lose my standing with this person. So it's really, it comes down to a love of self versus actually love of others. And so I remember hearing that. It was really convicting for me. So those are some great reasons why, why we sometimes neglect evangelism. So here's, and then it lists some of these obstacles. So hypocrisy, there at the bottom of page 133, many people are embarrassed to give the gospel because the way they live would not support their words. 
How does Matthew 5.16 address this excuse? So Matthew 5.16 says that your life should be a testimony to the gospel. The problem is because, but that still doesn't take care of the fact that sometimes we're, I remember when I was early on living as a, when I first became a Christian, I was saved at 24. So early on in a Christian, my Christian life, I had a desire to testify to my friends, my friends who I've known my whole life. You know, we've been best friends since we were in junior high. Tell some of these guys about Jesus because, you know, you care about these guys and you wanted to share, but you're thinking, you know, these guys know me. They know what kind of stuff that we, I've done with them. And now i got to talk about Jesus. And you're like, man, they're going to know I'm a hypocrite. Because I am a hypocrite. I'm doing this stuff and I'm telling them about Jesus. You know, am I, is, am I living out what it says there with Matthew? But, you know, we don't want to let that be cause us to uh, not do anything. So what we need to be doing in those situations is praying. So those actually are opportunities for prayer. So, and all motivators for getting getting our thing our, our act together because of our love for, love for others. So, that second one, fear prohibits evangelism. Perhaps the most common hindrance to evangelism is fear. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five says, "Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe." So, fear of man. What was the disciples' prayer amidst persecution in Acts 4.29? Now, Acts 4.29 says, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. So the disciples' prayer was boldness in, in light of that persecution. Boldness in preaching. They didn't rely on their own strength or eloquence. They actually asked God for, and for boldness in preaching. So fear to speak out is certainly real. However, it is no excuse for silence. Indeed, Christ's description in Matthew 7.13 of the many people who are on the wide road to eternal destruction demands that you move past your personal inhibitions and give a bold warning to lost friends, family members, and acquaintances. Uh, Richard Baxter, so the 17th century English preacher, says, said it should cast in us into great distress to see so many men in such plain danger of being everlastingly undone. And if we, by faith, did indeed look upon them as within a step of hell, it would more effectively untie our tongues. So sober recognition of where uh, where people are, are have where they're headed. Monasticism prohibits evangelism. Religious men and women over many centuries have demonstrated a supposed godliness by leaving the normal life of the world and entering monasteries. The monastic movement is absolutely unbiblical, yet many Christians have placed themselves into a type of modern monastery. They allow themselves no contact with unsaved people for fear of being defiled. The Bible, however, calls for separation from the world, not isolation. John 17 Jesus says that we are still in the world, though not of it. For what is what was Christ criticized in Matthew 9? Matthew 9, 10 through 11 says, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus' response in uh, verses 12 and 13, he said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So, people, the lost need to hear our voice. God has ordained that his people are the ones who carry this out, so somehow the lost need to hear it from us. So there's a pro, there's the uh, a disconnect when we try to pull away from the world. Christian author John Stamp has rightly said that every relation, every relationship into which into which one enters becomes an evangelistic opportunity. Several practices, practical ways that you can develop such friendships with unsaved people as a means of giving them the gospel. So, you know, reflect on this. What are some ways that you can you can carry this out? So some of you are, you know, everyone here is already involved in some relationships with unsaved people. 
Yeah, I'm sure you guys are. Whether it's work, school, neighbors, family, you know, we all have unsaved people in our life right now. So we're already engaged in these relationships. You know, we so we we already the relationships are there. So we actually just need to figure out ways that we, practical ways that we can develop those friendships, those relationships, so that we can actually carry the gospel and, and share it. You know, if you don't have any of those relationships, or those relationships you've already, you know, maybe that you're already faithfully doing that. Maybe you already the, most of the unsaved people that you in your life, they've already, you know, you've shared the gospel as much as possible. So we need to sh- seek places we can shine our light. So sporting events, um, crafting, crafting clubs, uh, you know, that kind of thing. It's specific interest club. I knew a guy in seminary. He. I thought, he remember one time he was talking to me about it. He was going to like an aquarium club. And I thought, wow, that's, that's weird, you know, like, I don't hear too many of those. And I remember being interested because my whole life up until, you know, I always had big fish tanks and lots of fish growing up. So I'm like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. You know, I haven't done that since I was like, I don't know. I stopped doing that when I was in high school just because I got bored. But I was like, that's, that's pretty cool, you know, like, what kind of fish, you know, and I remember him telling me, like, I don't really care too much about the fish you know I'm just looking for opportunities to meet unsaved people so on one hand I thought that was interesting because you know like he's trying to find some way his, he realized his, the limitations of his his circles so he was trying to to do it but I have, the one critique I have is that it was unnatural for him so I mean you know you try to find something that you're actually interested in to, to do it don't join an aquarium club if you have no interest in aquariums and fish uh, because you won't stick it out. I remember him quitting. It was like he was in there for a year and he quit because he just didn't, he wasn't interested. So, you know, find ways to get those kind of things that maybe you can get engaged with that are fun for you. That's something you want to do already, but then you can leverage those relationships to actually share the gospel. Excuses, prohibit evangelism, bottom of 134. Many Christians, perhaps for, for one of the reasons just mentioned, have a list of reasons why they cannot or should not share the gospel. Some of the excuses. It's not my business. It's a private matter. So 2 Corinthians says, He has committed us the message of reconciliation. So we have this commission from Christ himself. So it is our business. Other excuse, I just live a Christian life. So sometimes you'll hear that. I remember when I first became a Christian, I hearing that, I thought, oh yeah, that makes sense. But it's actually an unbiblical approach. This lifestyle evangelism, I can just... Share the gospel by living a good life. And that's what it says, this lifestyle evangelism. Proponents argue that a verbal witness was not necessary if a living witness was maintained. So, of course, we're commanded to live godly lives. But your lifestyle should be a support of your verbal testimony, not a substitute. So that's important. Your lifestyle is not a substitute for a verbal testimony. Uh, so the specific commands given to believers in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, how does that address it? If Christ tells us to make disciples, there's this there's an idea that we're actually teaching others. We have to teach others, so we have to be able to speak to others. One of the verses is not listened here, but I thought was fitting for this is First Peter three fifteen. First Peter three fifteen says, "But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord." Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So always be prepared to give an answer for the lifestyle that you're living, for the, the choices you make, for the things you... You know, when people see something and you're, they see the difference in your life, you have to be prepared to give an answer. So there, there's a, a command we have from the Bible that we have to be able to speak to others. From where does faith come according to Romans 10.17? So Romans 10.17, it says, Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word that is the preached word about Christ. So faith comes from hearing the message. How does, this, how does that address lifestyle evangelism? Is Of course, they're speaking about this message, this preached message. That last excuse there, I don't know enough. So this is something, uh, sometimes like Daniel said, when you're afraid that maybe you might not have the right answers and you don't want to make the situation worse, it's a very, it is a very real situation. 
one of the verses it's not listed here I thought would be good to think about is Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. It says, We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good and evil. So what what the writer of Hebrews is telling them, what the writer of Hebrews is charging this congregation that he's writing to, is saying, you guys should be teaching the word. There's an expectation for every Christian, not just Christian leadership, not just for mature believers. Every single Christian, there's an expectation that you progress in your Christian life to the point where you can teach others the basics, the basic truths of the Christian life. He says, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths. The implication is you should be teaching these elementary truths about the Christian life to others. So every one of us has this responsibility to, to put ourselves in a situation where we know those and we can uh, share it with others. Of course, you know, it may take time. So it's not saying that right now we all need to have that, but we need to all be working towards that goal. So this excuse may be true, but it does not exempt you from responsibility. Whether or not you feel qualified, the fact is that God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Ready or not, God has commanded you to tell the good news of salvation through Christ to lost men. Here's the suggestion. If you don't know enough to present the gospel to unsaved, get busy learning. And so this next section will help you, kind of the how-to. It's the methodology of evangelism, bottom of 135. So there are many methods of personal evangelism. This book will not propose a particular method but you must that you must use. Rather, it will present basic principles and their biblical bases. Probably the most effective method is one that incorporates these principles but which fits your particular personality. All sound methods of evangelism have at least three things in common. So these, before we get these three things, they're really important. That's this principled approach that focuses in on your personal strengths, your personal traits, your personal habits. So you, when we think about the gospel, we don't want to just memorize a couple sentences that you just rattle off to the, every time you want to share the gospel with somebody. You memorize, you think about a couple principles that you have, and then you adapt them to your own life. How, how, what's the, how do I, how am I going to convey this message? You know, I want it to be natural. So I need to be able to, figure out a way that I can say this in a natural way. You know, in my my own traits, my own strengths, my own habits. So principled approach. A commitment to the importance of Scripture. So people will not be won to Christ by your explanations or illustrations. While both of those may be helpful, they are legit, legitimate only if they clarify Scripture. The power of the gospel is in God's words, not yours. So the Bible is called, in Romans 1.16, the power of God. It's the power of God. So what does Paul say regarding his presentation of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5? He says that I, I that it was done with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Through the Spirit's power. So he didn't use human wisdom, but rather used God's power to accomplish what he did. According to verse 5, why was he so careful? So that your faith is on God's power, that your faith is based on God's power, not on human wisdom, not on human eloquence, not on a human person, not on a person. What promise is given regarding scripture in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11? So just reading 11 says, So is my word that goes from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Some of you may be familiar with that word, that verse. God's word will accomplish his goal for it. His word will accomplish his goal. So that's why we need to just be faithful transmitters. When we transmit God's word faithfully and honestly, it will accomplish God's goal. How does it apply to the work of evangelism? The results are dependent, excuse me, 
uh, are not dependent upon our cleverness or appeal, but simply on our faithfulness in transmitting that message. So the, the results, anything that happens from uh, our evangelistic efforts are dependent upon uh, our faithfulness is our, on God, and so we need to just be faithful in transmitting that message. So these six basic truths. And so these actually can be boiled down to a simpler, but we'll, we'll cover these, these six. A clear presentation of the biblical truth. God's purpose. So man was created by God to honor and serve him. And then man's problem, all men are sinners. So you know, some, these are good to memorize or memorize these verses. Sin's consequence. So sin separates man from God, keeps him from heaven, and makes him deserving of hell. Because of his great love, God sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross as our sinless substitute. This is Christ's payment, which leads to our pardon. Scripture commands us to turn from sin to God and to God and trust in Christ as our only hope of salvation. The sinner must place his confidence in Christ alone, not his own good works. Salvation must be received as a free gift. Six, and then God's promise. God promises eternal life to all who receive Jesus Christ. So we, we should need to think about and develop the above these above items, these six items, in a way that's natural for us to say. Repeat it without being uh, robotic. We don't want to just be robots when we're trying to repeat this. And we talked about this with our with the crossroads with the, uh, apologetics. When you're talking to someone about the faith, our faith, you have to deal with that person as a person. You can't deal with them as just like this, um, you know, like, let me just get my script out and I'm going to say these things to you and then, you know, re- disregard anything you're saying because I need to stick to my script. You have to treat that person as a person. And so you need to have these six things memorized but and you want to try to cover them though in a way that's natural. You know, other ways that people have talked about doing this, and I think this is Pastor Ken has talked about this in, in other classes. But it's you know, God, four topics: God, man, his sin, and Jesus Christ. So those four topics are the topics you want to be hitting with the gospel. Somehow, you know, those are from Packer, J.I. Packer, Evangelism and Sovereignty of God: God, man, sin. Jesus Christ. So those, you know, you're covering those, these six topics can be boiled down to that. So God, you start with God, you know, he created us, he has a, it was, we were made in his image for his purpose, man, and then you you get to the issue of man and sin, what, what is the result of our sin, where are we now, and then you you uh, follow it up with Jesus Christ and what he offers, repentance and faith coming from Jesus Christ. So, number three, a personal testimony and invitation to respond. God will often use your testimony of salvation to cause, cause others to realize their own need. A changed life is a strong tool to show people their need of salvation. Even baby Christians can echo the words of the man who Jesus healed of blindness. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. So this idea of being able to, if you, all else fails, you can speak about your own personal situation and, and call sinners to repentance. So the miracle of evangelism. One word of caution is appropriate as you prepare to share the gospel with others. Salvation is a work of God, not men. Only God can bring conviction. Only God can draw men's repentance. Only God can do the work of regeneration. So we're trying to hit that topic through the whole lesson. Only God can actually get these results. It doesn't take away from the fact we have responsibility, but we don't. the results are not up to us. So in your zeal to see people saved, do not usurp the authority and function of the Holy Spirit. The result can be disastrous. You may pick fruit that is not yet ripe, and the person may make a profession of faith without a possession of faith. That person will then be even less likely to come to genuine salvation because of a false assurance. That's what we don't want to do, right? Sometimes... I know in my own situation, I have an uncle. My, he prayed. This, I think he prayed the sinner's prayer with my grandmother once at church, and then uh, you would never know that. So, but she is she is convinced. He is convinced. They all they base their assurance all on this 
the sinner's prayer, even though he's never, you would never know, there's been no evidence of a Christian life. And so you, this person, my uncle now has false assurance of salvation, which is actually a worse state because they're still lost. All, all the evidence points to a lost state, but they have this false assurance because you, you know, based on this sinner's prayer. So what does Jonah 2.9 teach regarding salvation? Jonah 2.9 says, But I with shouts of grateful praise will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. So salvation comes from the Lord. What responsibility does Jesus assign to the Father in John 6.44? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise them up on the last day. So the Father draws those who will be saved. It is up to God. How should those two passages affect your presentation of the gospel? So we depend on God for the results. We depend expectantly, because if you remember, God's desire is that no one should perish. So we should, in, very, in a very real way, expect that, that this person will be saved, but... It's, we realize it's not it's not up to us. It's God's desire that all would be saved, but ultimately it's up to God to draw that person. In conclusion, a review of chapter 1 will be helpful as we prepare to share the gospel with others. Uh, so you, there, in the rest of this just talks about there's a bridge track. So we use that bridge track. We hand out. You can get them at the information desk. Uh, it's a good, really good way of walking through the gospel. And even if you don't give it out to somebody, it's a good way, a good primer to review for yourself so that you can explain the gospel to someone else. So they're, they're really good. Uh, I would highly suggest them. I used to have Arabic language ones saved in my car when we looked at Dearborn. So they're really uh, good to have. So any any questions on that? Any of the material we covered this week? Any of the other previous weeks? Any questions? All right. Let me close this in prayer. Our loving and heavenly Father, we uh, just thank you for these past 12 weeks, uh, for the opportunity to learn more about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower and disciple of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the truths that we've learned today and studied out in this topic of evangelism. We pray that you would give us hearts for others, that we would be obedient to your word as we seek to carry your message to the lost uh, that we encounter in our lives. Help us to have a desire to, to grow in our knowledge of you so that we are prepared to share the message with others. But we pray that uh, we would be able to commit some of these truths to our daily lives, that we may shine as lights in a dark world and wherever we are, wherever you have us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.